there is a war between the rich and poor, a war between the man and the woman. There is a war between the ones who say there is a war and the ones who say that there isn't. Why don't you come on back to the war that's right, get in it. Hello everybody, this is uh, Michael Pelias along with my co-host Peter Bratzis for the sixth segment of the show Prosperity Marxism. Today we will be engaging, of course, the uh, ongoing uh, crisis with the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 and its effects, and also engage the possibility of a radical politics that may emerge from this space that we're now living in. Um, I would first like to, and we'll, we'll have a very active discussion today, but I would first like to situate this uh, crisis vis-a-vis uh, -vis the 2008-2009 financial crisis. I think that uh, it's important to do so since we have witnessed uh, what in Wall Street parlance is called a consistent bull market since March of 2009, with a couple of little small bumps in the road, but almost a straight-up uh, creation of, of wealth from the debacle of September in 2008 uh, in terms of multiple trillions of dollars, or really an advance of the market, even at the close today, of close to 250 to 300%. So anyway, we're, we're now living through both the financial crisis once again. I I see some of the panic out here, uh, not only in terms of uh, one's mortality or also what we will maybe engage as a concept, Giorgio Gombin's notion of bare life, but also the financial meltdown that people are really scared about where the economy is going, what, what shape will it take, and what, what political space can be made and what political action can be done in order to solve this crisis or at least begin to start, you know, with some kind of efforts towards a much more equitable and freer society than we're living under now. So um, anyway, I, um, I, I have many ideas about this, but I think it's best that Peter and I have a, a real discussion about this. I'm going to turn it over to him, but I do want to keep in mind that we should really talk about the role of class class position and class relations throughout this entire discussion, that it's very important that once again, to frame it in those kind of terms and not just as we're all dead in the long run as the great master John Maynard Keynes used to say. This is, a, this is class warfare at work and how do we you know, look at what that, the parameters of that warfare. So I'll let Peter come in and, and talk about this a bit and we'll try to have a, a conversation uh, about this uh, financial meltdown, you know, which was coming. It came maybe a little early, triggered by the coronavirus. And also what I want to talk about later is how does this, you know, uh, preface, if you will, a new form of surveillance capitalism or police state, or if that's not really the case that we've just been living through that for a long time and we'll just see a little bit of intensification. But some of the questions we'll raise today. So Peter, why don't you give your, your analysis of this a little bit or, you know, a kind of descriptive analysis of where you think we are and what this uh, virus uh, opens up as a possibility. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to go back to 
the 2008 crisis and even before, you know, I think we've been, we, we have since at least the late seventies onwards have been living in a moment where the political institutions, the state has become ever more inflexible in many ways, uh, combined with a ever increasing weakness uh, on the part of social movements to really fight back against the, the power of the capitalist class. You know, I think in part the increased, uh, uh, and, and you know, we've been working on a book on this, obviously, on techniques of servitude. But for me, the increase in risk aversion, you know, people are more and more risk adverse. And that not only means, you know, people wear helmets when riding bicycles and all that kind of stuff, but the principle of self-interest has become so deeply entrenched that few people, few people were willing to risk their individual interests in the name of political struggle. Even we saw, as we saw in the 2008 crisis onwards, and one case we know very well and we discussed many times, even in the, in the Greek case, where you would expect, uh, uh, given the political traditions in Greece, given the cultural propensities, that there would be much more of a fight back against this, the, the, liberal, the liberal onslaught, you know, and austerity, certainly, that took place in Greece. Very little happened. Very little happened. You know, there were general strikes that lasted one day or two days. Uh, people occupied some squares. But given the scale of what happened in Greece, relatively speaking, there was not much of a struggle and attempts to resist. People kept going to work. People kept paying their bills, by and large. People voted in the elections. Cities I won didn't really mean that much in the end. You know, the external constraints were much higher than, you know, party politics could, could uh, uh, overcome. Uh, and I've been saying, you know, we, you probably have heard me say this many times, and I say it to my students at times and so forth, you know, we're writing for the revolution or the asteroid, whichever comes first, or the earthquake or whatever. <laughs> I bet on the asteroid, yeah. right? even and though I we're prosperity Marxists. <laughs> if it hasn't hit yet, you, know, you can, see, you can right. see it coming, certainly. We and that Marxist meter, meters, and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. That raises now many possibilities, I think. Yeah. You know, I think you uh, situate this very well by bringing up the Greek example that we were, you know, somewhat cautiously optimistic that this might be a moment of where a radical reformist movement could really take power and maybe do some good and, you know, really set the conversation differently and political practice differently. But we were fooled and, you know, we, we were there for the Oki vote and, in, in the summer of, um, you know, uh, uh, two summers ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, also, I mean, the failure of Occupy Wall Street, too, which was another kind of, you know, a left populist uprising and people knowing, of course, where we got the slogan of the 1% as if, you know, that was news to, you know, some people, especially Marxists, that there is a ruling class and there is a, a 1% out there, but it became a, a dominant popular slogan 
uh, during that period. I guess the, the, the question we really have to raise is, what makes this different? I mean, you know, this is a question, how is this, this coronavirus and this economic uh, obviously slow down, probably going to throw us into what could be described as a quasi-depression at this point. We don't know the extent of the damage. I mean, uh, Goldman Sachs put out a, a, a position, no, J.P. Morgan, excuse me, put out a report that you're going to see a 14% decline in GNP in the second quarter. And that's where the, the real bulk of it's going to be. And then it's going to turn around in the third and fourth quarter. This is coming from, quote, Wall Street economists, obviously. But 14%, it's quite a hit in GNP when the predictions at the beginning of the year was for upwards of 2 3%, you know, for that same quarter and, and, and well over 2 2.5% for the year. So, um, and those are, you know, statistical approaches to the economy, but do have some kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, importance in terms of how decisions are made. So I, I guess our question is, I mean, really to go forward here, what, what politically can we draw out of this? What effects can we, can we draw? I mean, it seems to me that uh, in a book that was written in 2012 by Paul Virilia, The Administration of Fear, he basically says the strong are the fastest. And I guess, I mean, I take that proposition to heart, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the way he, he phrases that, it, it is the strong who are the fastest that ultimately win, right? The law, the law of the fastest is the law of the strongest, is, is his phrase. So, and a question, the question would be, how would revolutionary consciousness and, and or radical practice, both and, uh, you know, basically become accelerated at this point. You know, I mean, we know about programs, but how, how could it be accelerated since uh, it's so obvious to us, I mean, it's, you know, virtually beyond transparency <laughs> at this point, you know, uh, of what, what's going on that objective revolutionary conditions exist. However, the question is, will, will the seizing of the moment uh, you know, happen. So I'd like to open up that question. I think that's the most serious question we could ask at this point, other than just saying there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of pent up aggression, etc. Yeah, so please. Well, I think the first point is, yeah. you know, this is basic Machiavelli in a sense. Right. That the, po the, the, the possibility for the creation of the new presupposes the destruction of the old. Right. And when you have a halting of the mechanisms of social reproduction, right. or even I don't, I don't even know if that's maybe the best way of framing it, just from the standpoint of everyday, everyday life. Right. You know, when you have the impossibility of maintaining the existing routines and rituals of society, that opens up many possibilities. And again, we may not be there yet because it's only the beginning, but a month from now and two months from now and three months from now and six months from now, we might find that we have a very open situation in terms of, you know, what Sartre would call the practical inert or, you know, whatever you want to call it, everyday life. That has reached a critical point where the existing political order is in decay, is falling apart. And it opens the door for the creation of the new. And here I think, you know, it's really a question of leadership. 
who can uh, uh, create some principle, some idea, something that can energize and mobilize some people towards the creation of some, some new vision, I think. You know, that doesn't exist yet. So we had a reformist candidate such as Bernie Sanders that's who not, raised. That's not enough. Leadership. I think that's. Well, I know enough. that, but that was that was the level of the leadership that we saw on the national level. We also have, you know, the Poor People's Campaign with uh, William Barber. We have these kind of things that we know about that are visible in the dominant media. Yes. You know, in terms of leadership, what are we really speaking about here? Is this the the role of the educational apparatus alongside of, you know, creating a new political formation, a new political party that has uh, really uh, an ability to bring in multiple numbers and, and really develop a platform of what we were talking about before the show of universal health care, forgiving a debt jubilee on student debt, right, and uh, guaranteed income, right? I mean... I think yeah, the, the Democratic Party is completely yeah. inept and incapable. There's no question about that. Right. right. I think Bernie Sanders should not uh, pause his campaign. He should continue campaigning because the question isn't whether he can get enough delegates to win the nomination. Right. You know, the you need a platform to put out the ideas. So, yeah. I mean, if I were Bernie Sanders, certainly I would not stop campaigning. If anything, I would, I would campaign even more vigorously, not to, to get people to vote for me necessarily, but to put out there some ideas that have the potential to transform the current political situation. As we know uh, from Gramsci, you know, the party first and foremost has to be pedagogical, has to educate. Yes. The party is basically an agitational, you know, uh, intellectual organization. Right. Absolutely. First and, and there's foremost. none of that. And you're right about putting the platform out there and the arguments about it. I mean, for interest, for interest, you know, I mean, for a very interesting example is that if I send doctor friends the Lancet, Ar Lancet uh, article, which is a medical publication, the cost benefits of going to Medicare for all or single payer universal health care, you know, they begin to really take notice, right, in a sense, and say, all right, look, look what's happening here. This is not only, you know, ethically, you know, necessary, this is also economically, a, a, you know, a, a bonanza where monies could be used elsewhere. And of course, as we know, the fake news and disinformation displace any kind of reason sustained discussion around that. So you, I, I think you're absolutely to, right. The name but, of our podcast, Prosperity Marxism, yes, yes. we see in, you know, in a very clear way, the kind of, of paucity and poverty that capitalist medical care provides. There's not even the foresight to have enough masks and equipments to deal with these kinds of what are obviously very predictable situations. I mean, you cannot predict it's going to happen this year or next year, but everyone knew and everyone knows that these things, have, uh, these things do happen, of course, right. now and again. There is a real possibility there. You know, probably much more likely than nuclear war with Russia or China, you know, these kinds of situations. So we're well stocked when it comes to nuclear weapons. 
but they have no masks. Right, and also Henry Ford is yeah. now in the business of uh, maybe producing ventilators instead of Model Hopefully. T's or uh, Ford Fusions, right? Hopefully. Right. So that's maybe, where we are. Yeah, you, know, exactly. you and I were there at the Graduate Center a few years ago when right. Fred Jameson gave his talk on an American utopia. But, you know, his idea, which was, I mean, it wasn't meant, it wasn't meant literally, I believe, you know, it was meant as a kind of provocation, as an exercise in thinking about some possibilities. But his proposal then, which is that we nationalize the military and we all get drafted into the military and thus universal health care, housing, education, so on down the line, is at this point quite Yes, and they would they would enforce it too. The mil the enlisted citizen into the military yes, would right. enforce that universal health care. That was the thing that he borrowed from nineteenth century utopic thinking yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's very yeah, very good. Yeah. So um yeah, in uh in, in some ways, I mean going back to my original point though, I mean, do you see I mean uh, I think that uh for example the left forum you know, as a, as, a, as a place to think through these things, that really problematize about the formation of a new political party. You know, that the Democratic Party has absolutely no capability, maybe shifting a little bit. As you know, you've seen some of the things out there in terms of, you know, the forgiving of a student debt for a few months and stuff. You may get some token, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, exchanges there from the Democratic Party, but you're not going to get any, you know, radical, <laughs> radical reform. Well, no, and, and in many ways, they are to so, the right of the Republicans on some of these issues. In a lot of issues, they are. That's yeah. very true. Yeah, very true. So, I mean, to my to my begin mind, with, what the standard forget the motivations. You know, right. people don't have to be. They can. The Republicans might be assholes. I don't know that that makes any difference necessarily. But you see now the Republican tendency is to go universal, not means tested, which right. opens up a lot of possibilities. And you see the Democrats still want to maintain the old narrative. Things should be means tested. You know, let's increase unemployment benefits a bit and so forth rather than, rather than uh, universal benefits. Right. So you're saying that the Republicans obviously are on the page or, or at least have taken a step towards guaranteed income, whereas the Democrats... Well, well, they're, they're the we, know very, we know very well that there is a great taboo in American society on being in, on public benefits. Right. You know, that reinforces the work ethic, certainly. It's a disincentive for people to sign up for... If they're universal, the taboo goes away. So to begin with, it is a way to fight back against this horrible work ethic that still exists, even though there's no longer a need for it, in the sense that we have too much productivity, too much production. That's a good point. And also, instead of just calling it work ethic, why don't we call it wage slavery ethic, too? That is yes, well, of course. Many, many people, you know, in, in a sense, which... So universal yeah, benefit... Precise to to uh, the point that's going right. on today, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, and also, Universal which is also much regulatory. Yeah, yeah. Then means tested, even if that means that some people might wind up getting less, let's say per month than what we're getting before. Just the lifting of that taboo 
in itself is that has a value too. You right. know, that, 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 that's important as well. It's not just the dollars that, you know, and I just, I might add, put that alongside the other revolutionary, you know, reform of universal health care. People no longer have to stay in the stupid wage slavery job in order to have health care, right. which is a good portion of our population. A lot of people, I'm going to lose benefits. I'm going to lose this, this care. So this is another thing that has to speak to this dialectical inter interconnection between guaranteed you know, income and, and uh, universal health care. There are, right? there are millions of people in yeah. the United States on yeah. disability, social security disability right. benefits, who don't dare make any extra money, or there are some things they could potentially do to earn sure. an income, sure. living on very little money per month, because disability often pays only a few hundred dollars or five, six hundred dollars a month. But right. their great fear is they would lose their medical coverage. Right, exactly. Which they need, obviously, when they're disability, they have medical. Medicaid, and the, yeah, absolutely. So and the third thing, of course, the student debt is also interrelated here, too, because a lot of people, of course, they continue to slave to pay off the debt, again, connected to the work, the work ethic, et cetera. And also, it makes sense if you eliminate that, you're going to actually build a better consumer society because you free up a lot of capital, you know, going forward to be spent on other things okay. instead of going directly to the banks. Or as I tell my students, you know, your, your generation at Harvard's being to collect on your debt right now. That's right. Well, Look, what do you think about how that? many, yeah. how many trillion yeah. right now are in offshore accounts? Uh, the last thing from tax uh, justice report was about 17 trillion. That was reported, reported. We don't know, but right. 17 trillion. Right there is five times the amount that was lost in the market is just sitting in offshore accounts. This is why I think these stock market bubbles, you know, in a certain way, and these breakdowns are not only economically the thing there, they're also a way to get capital re-legitimated into the system. This is just a you know, theory that I have, but that you have to put the offshore capital to create a bear market. I'm sorry, what? Sorry. Marx himself said the crisis is the solution. Yes, of course, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And capital feeds on crisis. Right. That's another thing. And it's not we also know the following, Capital loves crisis. We also know the following. Yeah. Yeah. After 9-11. Right. After 9-11, the... The, the United States, together with its you know, partners, found every bank account linked to Al-Qaeda and got all the money they had stashed here and there. Right. So there is not a technical limit in terms of them uncovering the money. That is, you know, it's not a technical right. problem. Right. It's a political right. issue. Yes. They can get every penny that, you know, all right. the... Uh, 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 people have stashed in Panama and uh, 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 it's, 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 yeah, Panama is uh, too legal for most of these people. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah, And as our friend Costantinos uh, Chukalas has pointed out, you know, it's not a coincidence that the pirates and uh, contemporary capitalists hide their money in the you know in the same places. Yes, exactly. 
You going back to the old pirate? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, that narrative is lo along with us. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, very, yeah, very good. Yeah. So, I mean, I think people should be aware that crisis is not especially just meaning that the system is collapsing on its own accord, right? It's no. also a great opportunity, of course, for the capitalist class. And Marx himself understood this as early as 25 years old much less, you know, the mature marks of the, of the period of capital, and especially volume three on fictitious capital, you know, uh, uh, going forward. So this, this needs to be really kept in mind. And, you know, then, the, of course, the question is how possible it is to restructure, as we've talked about, a healthcare system that delivers to people, right? That, you know, it, it's very possible. The funds are there. Etc. Where's Manusha? Where are they getting this money from right now? They say they're borrowing from Social Security. They're they're raiding the Social Security uh, accounts. But that's their way of saying they want to privatize Social Security. So this is an opportunity. We have to be very well aware of this. How this privatization will take place. How you're going to privatize the profits and then you'll socialize the losses, which was the mantra. Well, borrowing it from Social Security doesn't privatize it unless they don't pay it back. No, they're going to privatize Social Security. They're not going to let the government run it anymore. They'll Who's put it in the hands. Yeah. Who will be privatized into the, the investment banks? They want to get their hands on all that retirement money. Oh, I understand money. that. But I'm saying, why, why would, if, if Social Security, if all the reserve, more or less, is tied up in the form of, of bonds, privatization becomes less possible, not more possible. Well, well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see where they're going to go with this, you know, because they're going to be claiming the, the, the system is broke. You know, it's broken. Yeah, the, this is the same thing they're going to claim for Medicare. I think, I think Trump's first gamble was to try to do that by eliminating the payroll taxes, unemployment, Social Security, and Medicare. But that didn't work, obviously. They didn't, they didn't freeze the payroll taxes. Right. You mean I mean, no, yes. Less money will come in yeah. because less people are employed in paying the tax, but, right. 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 but at least it wasn't eliminated. But I think, I think that's not, that possibility becomes much less uh, uh, um, true at this point because now the tide goes the other way. That we see more and more and more the limits of all these privatizations. And there is a need for more regulation and centralization and control of these core uh, processes. To begin with, you know, the medical system, where we don't have the capacity we had 30, 40, 50 years ago in terms of hospital beds and capacity, machinery. You know, I think the number was in the 50s, there was something like nine beds per thousand people. Now we're down to 2.7, 2.8 or so. Because the medical industry, just as others, have moved to just-in-time production. You know, just lean, in, lean in more just efficient. In insurance payments. That's I right, lean in more efficient. Just-in-time so, insurance payments. That's right. Length of stay is based on insurance carriers, and there's a very standard okay. universal method to that. As we know from some of our friends who go into the hospital, they're released at least two to three weeks before they should be, you know, to go home. 
right? And then so we have, because of insurance. We have the great paradox. In many ways, maybe it's like education. You know, we have the most expensive system in the world, and by right. many measures, the worst. Medical and education. Medical and education. 31st in education in the UN reports and the medical system. We spend much more than our nearest competitor, and we have, I think we're ranked uh, in the high 20s uh, internationally in health, right? Even though everybody's got organic choices at the supermarkets, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like it's a thing of choice. It's a question of oh, nutrition. That's where you, know, you get to the question of of the class the class struggle because again even here you know people are going to work there are today thousands and thousands of people reporting for work with infected with a coronavirus and with symptoms coughing and all the rest because they don't have sick days right because Uh, that's a big big aspect Uh, absolutely yeah yeah of course and they can't afford not to go to work so they trick themselves into thinking oh I don't think it's the coronavirus. I think I just have the cold. Right. Yeah. Maybe someone should ask Mike Bloomberg to give us uh, what he spent on the campaign to help out some of these people here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that you spend a half a billion dollars on advertising for a, a failed three-week uh, political campaign. Yeah. Well, know? that's fine. I think you should have spent more money. You should have sent some yeah, well, spent so. too little. The more he would have spent, the better. You know, get it out there, spend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it didn't go. It didn't go to people who needed it, Peter. Well, I mean, someone's going to spend it. Yeah, yeah. He exactly. would have just, you know, kept it in the bank, obviously, or whatever, you know, in security. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the 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 thing here to me that's uh, uh is really the big question is how does collective fear become managed at this point? And to me, it seems like. You know, part of the problem we've always faced, especially during the last 40 years, is what kind of cultural transformation is possible? You know, how do you get people out of this very basic individualism? And, you know, what is social isolation or, quote, the the mantra of what is it, shelter in place, going to do to a lot of people psychically, et cetera? Who are the beneficiaries of this moment here is really a question we ask. I mean, here we are on Zoom, and Zoom communications is being, you know, advocated for by all the, you know, uh, and sponsored by all the big Wall Street firms as a, a big stock winner going forward. I mean, who will benefit from this in education, education supplies, you know, et cetera? Who will benefit from this in the economy? What class will really ultimately benefit and is there, where is that space for transformation? Where should our energies be devoted in a certain way beyond those who we you know, know, understand and have the analysis down of how we got to this point, but where do we go from here? This is really a big question. And one of the reasons I'm certainly thinking about new political formation, what would that really look like? You know, we have the Institute where we try to, you know, engage these kind of problems, but on another level, you need a party formation that can actually make demands and actually have results in the culture, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like a national banking system, which is a very radical idea. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to see that, but, you know, in the immediate future, but it's a very radical idea. Yeah, yeah. So, well, the, fir- the first possibility is, yeah. you know, people are still in shock, of course, and scrambling to figure out 
you know, how things are going to be for the, right. you know, foreseeable future in terms of getting groceries and working and how things are going to work out. But once that settles down a bit, you know, and things become more routine and boring, it opens up some possibilities in terms of how they think. You know, as we know, what, you know, a, a thinking presupposes boredom. You have to get bored enough. You know, when you're busy running around, there's no time to think. It's when you can sit down and... Well, I don't know if it's necessarily boredom. It might just be that space where you have the space for reflection and to be able to take a step back, distantiate oneself enough. So the social distantiation may be that space for thinking to a degree. I mean, I hear you there. I'm not so sure it's boredom that does that, but but that's another... Pascal Pascal called it boredom. We can call it, you know... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that, that's open, and then hopefully people get angry once they realize what is going on and the failure of the existing institutions to uh-huh. address, you know, these very real problems that exist. You know, once that se- settles in, I think, it really opens up the possibilities for something else. But again, yes, you're right. It, that there is a need for some kind of coordinated party institution of some type to lead the way, you know, to help right. people think through some of these problems. Right. I mean, again, again, to me, the, the real, the real problem here is this kind of social isolation that builds a new kind of individualism that really doesn't speak, doesn't really say, you know, I exist for the other in terms of collectivity. Right. It doesn't really start to think that way. This is a thing that we have to deal with in terms of, you know, we always talk about Protestantism, but the puritanical, individualistic, you know, anti-intellectual spirit of America that has been going on for a very long time, you know, that is very deeply embedded in the culture. How does one begin to penetrate that? In quote the global, you know the global. Maybe they'll overdose, Michael. Maybe they're overdose on individualism and isolation, and they'll desire the 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 communal again. Well, let's let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. Or at least be able to think beyond themselves and the immediate needs. You know, again, are we dealing here with? Uh, and uh, you know, our 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 man behind the glass. I'll mention him, Josh Colbo Here, you know, knows this well in the Hegelian system. The immediacy is very, you know, unreal, right, in a sense. But most people stay in that immediacy without the dialectical reflection that allows them to get to the point of thinking through contradictions or being in the tension of contradiction. But now they're in a moment where the familiar is not that familiar. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah, no. This is very strange times. I like the metaphor, and I, and I recommend to our audience uh, that in Jacobin, Mike Davis's article, The Monster at the Door, right? It's his, his, his piece on the coronavirus. It's a very beautifully written and uh, an extremely, uh, you know, perceptive and at the same time proportional essay. You know, he doesn't go out on a limb here, you know, in a sense. And some of, some of the people on the left are always already in the conspiracy mode, you know, et cetera. They, they rehearsed this in Davos in October, 
like they were simulated already, you know, et cetera. I think it's better to say, why didn't it, since they knew about it in December and early January, why weren't they prepared in the United States for it is a better way of looking at it instead of the, they, they're smart enough to simulate and create these kind of viruses. And, and, and even if they are, isn't it, it, it still necessitates the time for, you know, revolution, yeah. revolutionary consciousness. And then, so, you know, as, yeah. as our friend, Ho, friend Hegel also pointed out, the Aleph Minerva flies at dusk. Yes, it does. Yes. Know, now that things are, are unraveling, you know, it's more clear, you know, it becomes easier for people to understand that, you know, what really is going on. Maybe a year ago or three years ago, 10 years ago, certainly, it was more opaque, less difficult to make out what, the, what was happening. And right. as the things become more clear, then maybe that helps in the production of this revolutionary subjectivity. Well, the amazing thing to me is that the, 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 uh, the, uh, the rulers and the experts and their, their lackeys are completely without ideas. It's, it's almost a uh, completely predictable toolkit. You have the Fed inject something into the economy, right? You go to the monetary policy, you lower interest rates, so you can screw over the poor even more. You borrow at zero percent or a quarter of one percent, so you can loan out at 20 to 30 percent on credit cards, etc. You know, and you know, then of course that creates a new industry where you're going to be able to get rid of your debt and, you know, you say, oh, I'm paying 25%. Oh, here comes the guy offering me 12%, right? Mm-hmm. So all these layers of financial architecture are being created by this. And this is all they think about. And, you know, and we and, have to, I think, Michael, like, also yeah. conclude that the experts yeah. aren't that expert. Where were they six months ago or a year ago in preparing for this? Absolutely. How come the hospitals Absolutely. don't have equipment? So I read the financial press all the time. I read Barron's Financial Times, Wall Street Journal on the weekend, etc. And you go back and you look at the predictions for this year, (laughs) right? Completely off. Completely off. I'm just. I'm not just talking about that. I'm not just talking about that. Unexpected, right? Yeah. yeah. I know you're not. I'm not. Yeah. There's a constant refrain: "Let the experts handle it." politicians should not get involved right right you know and as that as sympathetic an argument as that may be when it comes to pence and trump and others right i think if you look at the the recent past certainly can we say that the experts when it comes to education are the people we should trust i don't think so no not at all and i mean look and i I know and i'll put this out to the audience too i go to the faculty resource center to learn zoom and I learned it from you last night in about 20 minutes, which would have taken them, you know, 20 days to do with me in all kinds of abstract, obtuse language where I have no understanding. So anyway, yes. I when it comes to the medical system, yeah. we leave it up to the experts. They couldn't even get a test to work properly. Exactly. That's another thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and again, this becomes a political matter because, as yeah. you know, is a longstanding question. Who are the best? when it comes to making judgments for our collective fate, let's say. The one, the few, or the many. Right. The one, the few, and the many. And I think time and time again, the conclusion is the many is the way to go. The many is the way to go. 
That's not yet on the table. The question is which few? The elected few, the, the Trumps and Pences of the world, or the technocratic few? But I think both are insufficient. Right. What we need is to go, go back, back to, to the expertise yeah. of the many. Right. No, I, I, I hear you. And that's, that's very much, uh, as you know, a Deleuzean, Guattarian position in terms of the many before the one in terms of the ancients as it's, well, or the multitude right. in the, the Negri and it's, it's Negri, it's Machiavelli, it's Aristotle. Yes, you know, it's, it's a lot of people. Machiavelli in terms of, from the standpoint of the people, the prince must also right. always see. Right. right, exactly. So this is very, very important to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, um, I, I, I think, again, you know, a part of prosperity Marxism in the future should be hammering away at this kind of new po political formation. Because without that, as you, as, you, as you well know, without any kind of new politics, we're, we're, we're finished. Right, we're we're back to business as usual. It will stay the same. You know, we'll get some token things. There'll be that twenty percent. It's not going to stay the same. It will get worse. It will get worse probably. It will get worse. Yes. Uh, no. I I know, but I meant the same old policies, yeah. etc. Yeah. Of course, it's going to get worse. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we 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 really need to you know speak to that uh, in an active and uh, you know ongoing uh, ongoing way. Um, you know, uh, going back to this too is, um, you know, uh, you know the effect this will have, and I know we didn't really want to go there, but to me, I know I brought up this term before the um, the uh, the show began today, but you know, what about the, uh, the, the again the more pessimistic view that this offers the opportunity to infantilize the public even more, you know, in a sense that you know as you were talking about the rule by the very few, or the cult of the expert? And does this now become a new form of infantilization that goes on? I mean, I'm noticing this in the educational mix when all this change to online learning, there's a kind of infantilization going on, you know, in these trainings, the way people exchange emails, et cetera. You know, uh, there's, there, there don't seem to be any ideas, fertile ground. I mean, there's some sharing, but there's nothing really about how would one, you know, conduct a, a really effective online course? And, and what would this mean to the, the population in a way that we're already dealing with massive psychic impoverishment, you know, massive undereducated. I think that's already been true for so long. Yeah, no, I, don't I don't know how much lower things could go. Look, one of the top five uh, uh, honeymoon destinations in the United States is Disney World. It's closed. Right. Well, it's closed. Yes, it's closed now. But before it was closed, it yeah, was right. So right. how much worse could it get? Right. How much worse could it get? Yes. These are people who decide for themselves to go for their right. honeymoon to Disney World. Right. So how uh, much worse you know, infantilization could there be? Well, that's, that's, that's possible to think about. But they'll come, I promise you. We'll talk about this maybe come September. You know, in a sense, what, what, what maybe the new form of infantilization is. There might be Even though, you know, myself and Stanley were on Trump pretty quickly in all of this. And, you know, there might, you know maybe some that. things become more visible now, such as a kind of de skilling that's had occurs. You know, we can go back to Harry Braverman and Monopoly Capital, as I've noted, and 
Josh has noted and many others, you go to the supermarket now and there are plenty of there's meat and fish and these kinds of things. What everyone buys are the frozen foods and, you know, right. in some levels, people can't cook. Even to cook something, you know, right. is problematic. That's Our good. comrade, you know, and collaborator and good friend Arun Gupta, he just started a cooking show yesterday. We'll put it okay. up. Apocalypse Chow. Apocalypse Chow. Yeah. Yes, where he's doing right. cooking right. lessons. Right. Oh. Cooking lessons. Right. right, right. You know, it's a very necessary uh, process. You know, people can't make a coffee. Some people were commenting today, oh, the coffee shops are closed. What are we going to do? You know? Yeah. So what kind of... So I don't know if that's inf influenzation or as much as it is a kind of de-skilling or the commodification well, that's, of the that's best the day Or even to make a coffee, yeah, people yeah, are capable yeah. and they, you know, they have to go to Starbucks or wherever mm -hmm. to buy yeah. a coffee. Well, that's part of Bernard Stiegler's thing that people have forgotten how to make things and therefore yes. they've forgotten how to live. And that's, that's what right. I mean. The way of forgetting how to live is part of that infantilization, which of course goes back to the labor question and, you know, the de-skilling of, uh, you know, most most professions, you know, the, the, the service sector is the pushing of the button, public relations, sales, lobbying, all these things that are, you know, all part of just kind of that's one thing, role that's of one thing theories of personality presentation itself in everyday life. Yeah, yeah. The party yeah. should provide yeah. also these personality these, makeovers. <laughs> making coffee, making yes. Gupta yes. can be our basic skills. Who makes the coffee today? Who makes the good Greek salad? Who who cooks the uh, strip sirloin? Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a good point as well. Um, you know, some people have been speaking about, maybe we can uh, talk about this for the last few minutes of the program, have been speaking about uh, the, uh, the adv advent of full martial law in the United States, that this is no longer just the, you know, kind of hidden police state or sometimes very visible police state, but it is a prelude to a new kind of martial law. So this is another thing we, we should engage and, you know, talk about a little bit. Um, That's very yeah, optimistic. Martial law yeah. presupposes okay. are disobedient. Right. So yeah. that would well, mean well, wait a minute. Martial law may be also the preface to transgression. Don't even attempt to transgress, right? The the presence does that. That's it, fine. Maybe the people I, I, are I would I would not be I would not be at all concerned because either it means people are disobeying. Or it means that they, there's the great fear that they're going to disobey, which might help things. Right. You know, that fear could help things. But I think we should look at this in terms of, you know, and, and you know this work, I mean, everything from Jacques law, you know, the policing of families, and what do we mean by new, new forms of policing? Because we, we really want to look at what the production of these new forms are. You know, you and I have had this discussion, is the ideological state apparatus even necessary anymore? Are the repressive state apparatuses enough? Do you really even need the ideology in some cases, uh, you know, going forward? Which is a question, you know, I mean, going, you know, moving forward, right? Is is this police presence oh. so great, except, right? No, I know, I don't think, I don't, so I don't know. I don't think, look, there has been, and we've talked about this before, there has been 
a great shrinking of the capacity of the state to address discontent through reform, through increasing spending, through the kinds of things they could do in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s to manage discontent. You know, I have a job as a professor, you know, or, you know, most of us were able to study in universities because after those upheavals in the 60s, you know, uh, uh, there was a lot of money put into institutions of public higher education as a way of managing that discontent. That doesn't happen anymore. So the, the response was, and this is what Nikos Poulanzas termed authoritarian statism, authoritarian term was because they could no longer legitimize the system as much through reforms and spending, so they used authoritarian means. That does not mean, however, that the role of the ideological state apparatuses were greatly reduced. Because my, one of my things that I, I have still don't fully understand is how in a society such as this one, where there are such great disparities, such great class, class differences, there's not more violence. Why isn't there more police, more violence? There is a lot, but it's not all that much given the conditions. You would expect even much more necessary. Well, it may be the implication. I mean, we have to think this through, though. It may be the implied uh, reader on the streets <laughs> that is really picking up on the, the amount of state terror and state violence there really is, or that potential to be unleashed. You know that that's another another story. That but I mean, but I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, people. We don't are, have we don't have prison riots like Attica. Now we have some riots here and there, but we don't have anything like Attica. We don't have the Soledad prison revolt, even though we have movements on the outside, such as abolition democracy, the Mumia uh, groups, etc. So I mean, again, this, this raises very serious, you know, again questions, and I don't fully understand it either. But yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, you know, in, on a on a basic level, they're symptomatic of the same weakness of struggle from below, right? Obviously, but right. why that struggle still, why that weakness still persists? Where more and more and more, you think, well, what's there to lose? Right. You know, if you're living in the ruins of what once were ghettos in Detroit, in St. Louis, in Baltimore, and so forth. You know, what's there to lose? How much worse could it get? Right, right. Well, that was, a, that was the attitude in the 60s, too. Well, the sure. 60s compared to now civil was rights, paradise. Civil rights uh, struggle. The 60s exactly. in Detroit. What do you have to lose? Right. You know? yeah. The 60s in Detroit or St. Louis or Baltimore, these places, was a paradise compared to today. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, that's true in some ways, yeah. yeah. Many ways. Yeah, well, yeah, that uh, Little Italy area too that was uh, different, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's been cleaned up. Sixties people had jobs. They had their health care benefits. You know, they you know if you're auto worker in Detroit, you might even have your boat or a place. You know, one of the. Well, yeah, one, one thing during that period that I think is crucial to understand as well, and again, we have not gotten a full explanation of this. Uh, from any of the Marxist political economists or any political economists, the role of inflation. You know, during the 60s, you would expect a one, maybe a 2% cost of living increase. Your rent would go up by maybe 3 to 5%, right, et cetera. There was really literally no 
inflation during the period of Johnson's Great Society, really up until you know the Nixon 70s, right? Inflation became very crude, you know, in the middle 70s, became a real thing, you know, and and, and going forward, and, and it has been with but, us ever since. Yeah, but inflation is typically a sign of increasing wages. In the 70s, it wasn't because it was a result of the oil crisis, you know, stagflation, as they well, Partially, yeah, but that's, that, yeah, but, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, partially. Well, I think that's, partially. that's an anomaly. The inflation of the 70s was not a typical thing, but I don't know that that's necessarily the, you know, the most important question in this context. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it's an important question in the sense that people work very hard now for very little returns, right? In the South. But it's not because money. of inflation. Inflation has been very low. Inflation has been very low since the 1980s, but that doesn't mean people do well. Oh, look at, look at how, come on. We, you know, look at housing, look at the cost. No, no, of, no, no, no. If you look at overall inflation, it's right. very low. No. Look at the last I mean, years or so. I had an apartment on the Upper East Side for three hundred twenty-five dollars a Again, month. That, that's yeah. one. That's one measure of things. But I'm saying well, if that's you're a major overall, measure where you live, your shelter. You know, that's the the big phrase the right now. Class, the working class, Michael, does not live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan or Tribeca or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. If you look well, at the cost of a house, the down payment, the accumulation. If you look capital, at the cost of a house in Detroit. In 1960, yeah. compared to today, okay. it was higher in 1960. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes even in absolute numbers, let alone relative numbers. Well, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I not we'll see. There, there, you know, you can you can go you can go to those places and you can buy a house for five thousand dollars. Yes, but that's a burned out, and that has no no potential. Well, by, by the same token, if, if you measure Tribeca, that's not exactly representative of the United States as a whole. I mean, look at Katrina. After Katrina, one section of New Orleans is built up like crazy, and people can't afford to live there anymore. Yeah, you know, they were moved well, out. That's, that's true, but I'm saying if you look at if you look at the overall picture, right? Of course, it's true that there are pockets of great prosperity and inflation. That's true. But I'm saying if you look at the overall picture, it's not inflation that has been the problem. And you have for many, many years a look, the banks aren't in the business of losing money, as you know. So if they're giving you a mortgage at three and a half percent, what what is their bet in terms of inflation for the next 30 years? They're bad. It's already already in in in, right. in terms of the price of the home going up. They always estimate that the cost of the home will forget go. the price of the home going up. 20, 30%. When they are lending you money at three and a half percent for thirty years, right. what are what what are they assuming in terms of inflation rates? They're they're assuming already that you're going to have very low inflation during that. That's year. right. And they're not in the business of losing money. And from the late, mid to late 80s onwards, we see that we have a, 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 a situation of relatively low inflation. And that, wasn't, that didn't go hand in hand with the working class doing better. It went hand in hand with the working class doing worse. Well, a, a professor in 1972 of your rank, so to speak, makes about $20,000. Uh, 
That $20,000, at least in my mind, spent much better than the 100 or whatever it is today. And in real terms, that 20000 is just as good or even better than it was. There's been no growth at that level at all. And the yeah, but that's not, because, that Michael, that's not because of inflation. That's because, because we've cut, cut the funding. The ability to funding to higher education. The ability to, uh, you know, yeah. Well, inflation, I mean, you know, you could go to a, a, an elite uh, private institution for four to $5,000 tuition a year. Now that's 60 to 70 to 80, which is a good salary to some people, right? Whereas 5000 was not a good salary to people back in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a good point, I mean, you know, to talk about this because that's what really – you know, people are no longer savers. This is not a saving economy. After World War II, when the United States had still the huge manufacturing sector, and, you know, during the 50s and the 60s, people were not eaten up by rising prices, you know, by, you know, Michael, I think you're looking at it. I think you're looking at it in the wrong way. It's not the rising prices, it's the shrinking wages. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, but, but they go both hand in hand, Peter. No, I mean, they don't go hand in hand. Yes, they do. No, the shrinking wages, the wages is also, yes. They don't go hand in hand. Yes, of course. They don't go hand in hand. Well, okay. Look, well, yeah, yeah. I okay. am. But that's a way of social control. Why does that exist? Why does it behoove people to keep the shrinking wages and at the same time they created an entire industry and we're going to maybe have a president of the United States no, whose middle it, name is spreading you're mis- right? I think it leads us to misunderstand the mechanism. One of the reasons why the wages shrink or stay static is because they keep inflation rates low. The Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps inflation low. That's right. Not, not the actual cost of the inflation. You know, I mean, I have a car. I buy a high-powered car for $2,500 in 1968. That same car today is $70,000, right? You know, a car one, one fifth as well built today is 18 to 20,000. No, I think cars, yes, cars, are, cars, cars are one of those things that have gotten cheaper, not more expensive. It may be. I mean, in you, know, yeah. it, you know, in, 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 in relative, relative terms. Relative household income, maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's one of those things that have gotten cheaper. Some things have gotten Talk about this more as we go forward. I mean, I'm thinking of the great, beautiful ending of the and and the, the movie Jonah will be 25 in the year 2000, where there's a beautiful explanation of how inflation is created as a form of social control. You know, who who makes the prices go up? I think we're, it's we're yeah, seeing, I think Michael, it's the opposite. It's okay. The, the low inflation is created as a form of social control. You know, once they see labor unrest, once they see a tendency for wages to go up, then they tighten the money supply to cool things down. If we have seven, nine, 10, 12, 15. They're not doing that now. They've done that nothing but monetary policy for the last, you know, since Reagan, really. Because, but you didn't have, yes, but that's because, that's because you didn't have a tendency for wages to go up. 
Okay, well, we'll see. We, I don't see any wages going up. I mean, everybody. That's what I'm is, saying. Yes, you know, but when you, if when if they did go up, and that does create inflationary pressure, that's when you see them crack down and constrict things. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, no, we'll continue this discussion. I don't really think. Yeah, I think I think it's a more important problem. You know, the problem of inflation is a more I important. Don't think so. I because again, we've had very low inflation and very predictable inflation, certainly, for the well, last I, since, you know, since I, I, I hear where you're coming statistically, but anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. There used to be a popular song uh, by, uh, I forgot, Mo, it was one of the Motown people. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar couldn't make these prices with a high sky hook. And this yeah. was going on in the 70s when you had this enormous, you know, increase and jump in prices, et cetera. You know, also New York real estate. Are you really getting the much better places for no. five times the money that you paid years no, but ago? That's no. not, but again, that's not that's not the United States as a whole. Nobody, nobody in their in their after World War II. Think about this generationally too. If you go back to the 1950s and 60s of people that buy homes the first time, they never go in paying you know 10, 15, 20 percent down. Right, and in some cases zero to ten percent down. They would pay much more into that and have a very affordable uh, mortgage, in, in a sense. And they would not buy at in terms of you know something that they thought was very you know inflated. Michael, if you are measuring, I'm, I'm talking. If you are measuring yeah. the housing market or real estate by Fort Greene or Tribeca or the Upper West Side or whatever. Which are even worse than Boston and all the major cities in the United States, Houston, Chicago, etc. I mean, it may vary in terms of percentage, etc. But yeah, it's very, yeah. no, there, I mean, there are you know, we go back to the old Trotskyist line, it's not only Trotskyist line uh, of, uh, of une uneven uh, uh, development, because yes, of course, it's true that there are, there are many prosperous areas of the United States. And there are at the same time many places where the real estate values have plummeted since the Yes, yeah, so I'm very well aware of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I think overall, look, I'm the treasurer of the board, the co-op board in the building where I live. Right. And right. I see the financial records of the people who apply to rent apartments or to buy apartments and so forth. Right. And it's going to be going down next month. Many people may who work in who are lawyers or they work in, in banks and so forth, they're making a lot more money than academics make or certainly people who have. Well, yeah, that comes from outside. Yeah, so that's not I think if, if you were to measure the, the, the Manhattan real estate prices compared to, and you contrast it to the kind of money people make who work in financial services, let's say, it might be cheaper than it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. It might be cheaper. It's much more expensive for you and me because the academic salaries are lower than they would in the 70s. And the real estate prices are much higher than what all lawyers are making uh, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. That, that's another myth, too. I'm so saying the people who, who, people who maybe some of the people in New York are making at least that it's much money. Right, right. But you know, New York is not a place of production, nor is it a place that's generating a lot of ideas at this point, too, you know, in, in many ways. 
and, and not, you know, not the home of technological capital. You know, it's, it's Silicon Alley here. So we'll have to see what, what develops out of this too. You know, look at all this overbuilding. See, this is another question we're going to have to address going forward. And I'm glad we're having this discussion. I'm, you know, I'm not convinced that I'm absolutely right about inflation being one of the number one problems in a sense, you know, going forward and keeps uh, radical activity from going down. But I think it has to be factored in. But another thing we have to be to start looking oh, at no inflation. is this whole Hudson Yards, all this overbuilding in New York going to lead to a, a real estate uh, downturn, you know, in many ways. Is, is this going to be an effect of this virus in a certain way? You know, already, people, already you know, there was an If you can't live in these buildings, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen if there's no longer a demand? What's going to happen when there's no longer people want to work together in spaces? What happens in social isolation, et cetera? Yeah, mm -hmm. ultimately in terms of real estate here, which has kept the economy. A lot of people borrow on their house values, et cetera. That's you know, that, that's what they do. You know, that's the Glazer family, for example, the owners of Manchester United, their daughter goes to Tulane. They buy her a $5 million house to go to. If you had tried that in the 60s, that house would have been, there would have been bombs outside that house, you know, in a sense. This becomes part and parcel of a mentality. But anyway, the question is, how do you, how do you get to this mentality when you have still 50 million people, you know, without health care, you know, probably over 100 million people, one out of two maybe one out of three people don't have adequate health care. They may have health care, but then the question is always raised. We talk about universal health care. What is the quality of that health care? What does that really mean ultimately, you know, and what does that mean about the underinsured, you know, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have to keep these, these questions in mind. And then ultimately what, what effect going back to where we started today, uh, you know, what effect does this have, on you know the economics of the big cities where you have the most dense population is there going to be a flight you know the joke is all of the upper west side has gone to martha's vineyard right <laughs> in a way that's not true. you know Something the streets are empty I know. I know it's not true i'm just playing the, playing the joke oh they go to the Okay, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the question would be, what, what effect will this have on real estate? What will effect will it have in, in, in close of, of value of people? You know, that's another thing. Wealth in real estate, you know, in a sense, in value of houses and all of this, this is where people have borrowed the most on their houses, their houses equity to go forward. This is a very again, different game than was played before. New what York has to do, in my opinion, New York is a big place, but the United States is bigger. And the tendency in New York is, in some ways, or San Francisco and a little bit Chicago and Boston and so forth, is an anomaly. In most cities, it's the opposite that happens. The cities empty out, and they become pretty empty, and it's the suburbs that really become the, the 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 place where people live so i wouldn't frame it what's going to happen to manhattan in this kind of context um is a unique I'm, I'm situation about the overbuiltness you know the over the overbuilding of of these things a lot of these apartments 
and a lot of these buildings are now going up, who's going to go into these buildings? What is the question of the warehousing going forward? It's not overbuilt. And it's just overpriced. It's too expensive. There are plenty of people, you know, who are oh, who want the apartments. It's not that you don't have people to live there. Plenty of people want to live there. Right. They simply have to lower the, you know, people have to make more money or the prices have to be lowered. That's all. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's not, right, well, it's, not like, it's not going to be like Baltimore, you know, Detroit, that no one wants to live there. No, that's not the that's not the question again. I think the, the 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 problem that I see here, just going back to the correlation with inflation, is that people have used now the house as a borrowing term. It's no longer quote shelter in place to use that metaphor of De Blasio and the system at this point. It's no longer house as shelter. It's house as investment. You know, it's house as borrowing tool. And this has happened in a lot of cases where the house is now looked at in terms of the assets and not as just a, a necessity. And this has changed things. And I think this is all also part of inflated prices that go with education, everyday life expenses, et cetera, et cetera. This, this is all I'm, I'm trying to you know, point out. But we, we can come back to this discussion. Yeah. That you see in places like San Francisco, and in New York City and some other, you know, metropolitan areas, again, is not true in much of the United States. Well, it depends on what part of the United States. And you have to remember the density of the Bay Area, L.A. and its suburban surroundings, you know, Houston, you know, Dallas, Nexus in, in uh, Texas, right? Chicago in relation to Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, you know, Detroit, we know, is empty, right? But, you know, you do have that. And then, of course, the New York, Boston, East Coast nexus is a lot of population in all of this. You know, you can talk about, you know, backwards South Carolina, you I'm know, certain about places. Carolina. I'm talking okay. about Philadelphia. I'm talking about Baltimore. I'm talking about Cleveland. Got much more I'm talking about St. Louis. Rittenhouse Square. It depends on neighborhoods. Well, that's yeah. true everywhere. Every, even in Detroit, there are some areas that yeah. are gentrified and real estate is worth right. some I'm right. talking about overall. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't go from a city that was 2 million people, 250,000, and say that, you know, there's been an, infl an inflation of housing prices. Well, they were, they were completely devastated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But I mean, I'm talking about capital in the system, if you relate this to capital in general, not, not only just regional little things like Detroit or Baltimore or Philadelphia, you know, which were, you know, devastated in terms of their working classes. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, this to me... All, all the, the, the Rust Belt, as it were, you know, yeah. going from yeah. those cities of the East Coast, from, you right. know, Trenton and, and, and uh, you know, parts of Delaware and Maryland and, and, and so forth, all the way through to places like St. Louis and Cleveland and, and, and uh, you know, all, all of that is completely decimated. Certainly it's not more expensive now than it was in, in the 70s or 60s. Uh, New Orleans is, and it went through a hurricane, but then the population is decreased by 40% well, in the 60s. Yes. And the real estate is now you know, in terms of actual thing, is about about 1,500% 
greater to live there than it was, you know, I mean, in terms of nominal dollars than it was when it had a population of 640. Now it's back to about 380. Yeah. So you're saying what's needed really is a, is a hurricane to flood Detroit. We have a hurricane going on right now. And then the real estate markets. <laughs> yeah, I've lived through hurricanes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying that. But anyway, we, we, need, uh, we need to analyze this very well and, and talk about what's, what's going to be needed in the future. I mean, you know, the guaranteed right, right to space is really a, the big issue out here to me. You know, now that we're going through this whole shelter in place, the right, right to space or the right, right to place is really a, a, a very big question going forward. You know, I mean, you know, this is, you know, this is a very real issue. And we know this in, in New York City in many ways, that many people just leave. This is one of the reasons that people don't get together anymore. They're too busy working to make the rent, etc. You know, this is a very different kind of culture because of, you know, the expense of living or the cost of living. In, in some ways, uh, that, that's the only point I'm trying to make. It is taken away from communal, you know, uh, uh, gatherings. It's taken away from the ability to mobilize. In my my view, I've seen this for a long time, and there's been no oppositional culture of any kind of force except Occupy Wall Street, which was really about you know the one percent and inflation and how difficult it was to live, you know, in some ways, you know, in terms of the real real opposition. You know, we had a million people on the streets in the Iraq War. We, you know, we were in Afghanistan 20 years. There's been no, there's right. no anti-war movement at all right now. Not at well, all. what did the million people do by that measure? They were, they were corralled by the police. I have, a, I have, a, I have a theory that these are experiments at some levels to see how much people will take. You know, in some ways, how obedient they will become. You know, in some ways. I mean, you know, if you really think of this from a science fiction perspective and a Skinnerian perspective, you begin to think about this as, you know, this is part of a vast, another kind of social experimentation, you know, that's going on. Yeah. And Michael, right I, now, I think, you're, I think you're being very optimistic. Okay. And again, assuming that there is a need for people to be corralled or disciplined or, you know, there was, and I was there too, you know, there was, there were, there were marches. I wouldn't even call it demonstrations. There were protest marches. Okay. Which were quite orderly, you know, quite orderly. People came with little kids and they walked down Fifth Avenue and then we went for lunch and that kind of a thing. And it was ineffective precisely because it was so... Uh, uh, predictable and 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 uh, yeah, non, yeah. non-disruptive. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why would they need to impose well, themselves over people? People were happy enough to express their viewpoint and then go home. Another thing we have to th- think about here is that Macron, and we didn't really mention this, and maybe we should end here because. We're, we're getting way, way far afield. But Macron, you know, has the same thing with the yellow vest. How are they putting and neutralizing the yellow vest movement in France, too? Is this coronavirus a way, too, now of neutralizing any of these, uh, you know, demonstrations or, you know, and they were demonstrations in Paris. And a lot yes, of they, were, they were more disruptive, certainly, than the anti-war yeah, yes. Much more disruptive. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... 
So that's that another may, thing. That may this, be. Again, this way of keeping keeping the uh, masses at bay, you know, in, in a way, a new new form of how do we do this? I agree with you in a way. People are already slavish in a way. They're already and, completely and docile. Of, they're already completely docile. So I don't yeah, know why you know, there would be some great. You know, point about docile bodies. They were trained that way. This wasn't something that they just were born with. There was a training in, in place. There was a very sophisticated system of training, right? And, you know, we should be reading Hobbes, Bentham, and, uh, you know, Desaad at this point, and not especially only, you know, Derrida, Marx, Poulansas, and, uh, you know, et cetera, right? I mean, these are, these are the thinkers of what's well, really going well, on. How because Hobbes and Bentham among others, presupposed a certain kind of disorderly tendency of the hoi polloi, right? And the need for a coercive power above to discipline and create order. But what you and I both agree on is that that disruptive tendency is long gone. It may have existed 400 years ago, 300 years ago, but today's long gone. Yeah, yeah. But so, it's still effective for those that don't, I mean, don't, yeah. It's still effective in the society because they still believe that that disruptive element is there, you know, in many ways. I mean, look, we're going to have to explain, I mean, or at least get into the thing. Why is it that Sanders, who's on the cusp of actually being a threat at the National Convention of the Democrats, with the most votes, is wiped out on one Super Tuesday, and it's been nothing but a downward slide since. How does this happen overnight, you know, in some ways? What is in place to do that? You know, the, the, these are, I think, very real questions, you know, going forward. I don't think we have simple answers to it. You can say it's the power of the DNC. There was some ground manipulation, you know, the media, the dominant corporate media. But what really, really happens here? I mean, why, why is that that, that I think failure? one thing yeah, yeah. that became quite clear yeah. is that there was a generational divide in the younger voters, you know, people 45 and under, let's say certainly 30 and under, were overwhelmingly in favor of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and that's not just the folly of youth. It's, you know, the Sanders was pushing for policies that overwhelmingly benefited the young. You know, college for all, Eliminating college, uh, you know, debt. Also, policies for the debt. sixty-five and older generation, the Medicare crowd. Don't don't touch that. Social yeah. Security. Right. I mean, these things were also pitched also to people of that rank, and also but a lot of people, well, a lot of work sixty-five, people and, as well. 65 and over already have Medicare. Yes, but I I, I don't mean. Yeah, I meant without assaulting the 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 uh, the. Uh, the care that's there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I find, you know, we, we shouldn't be so general. There's specifics in the Sanders plan that were meant to save Medicare and save Social Security. That may be true. Started. That may be true. But what I'm saying is the following, that the older crowd is already has the benefits or is about to have the benefits. Right. And they were less motivated, certainly. And I think they're also fearful. What happens if they open it up to everyone? It right. might dilute the quality of health that we're getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, but I, I guess that's a 
I mean, you know, I don't think it was only the youth that produced the Sanders moment. I think there was also a lot of intelligence people and, you know, and, and also uh, a, a crowd around that that, you know, was more more than just the 30-year-olds, et cetera. You know, I think that was something very, very real about that. You know, and how does this get wiped out almost immediately? I mean, wiped out. I mean, you really think about this. You had an insurrection from sleepy Joe Biden. Think, think about this in a way, in the figurehead of Joe Biden going forward, how this happened with one, one turnaround on a Saturday in South Carolina. What happened? We, I mean, you know, this is, a, to me, that's a shock as well. <laughs> Not only the coronavirus, but the shock of that kind of turn, right? And things might turn again. Things might turn again. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> Back left, yeah. yeah. Right. Think my turn again. And, <laughs> and and someone like and the ideas of Bernie Sanders might be, you know, before we know it, there might be the you know the conservative voice among all the various possibilities. Okay, all right. Well, I, I think maybe we should leave it at this, uh, you know. And uh, any other thoughts before we uh, sign off? Well, I think we're going on probably too long. Covered a lot of bases here, so we have a lot to talk about in the future, uh, from inflation to uh, you know uh, wage uh, slavery to uh, radical possibilities. I mean, let me just ask you, and we'll end on this note: Do you really think that there's radical space for uh, these uh, this radical po uh, politics at this point? Do you really think we have that I kind think, of I think moment? That, I, I'm not saying it's going to happen, obviously. But I, I, what right, I'm saying right. is the door is open. Right. Now that possibility. Okay. You know, before the shock of the virus and everyone sheltering in place or things grinding to a halt in many ways in terms of everyday life, right. it was unthinkable that the radical, that some kind of radical future would emerge. Now it's thinkable. And it's possible because you have a suspension of the normal production of social order. There is a crisis. People right. are scrambling to find a way to address it. And right. it opens the door to some, something new. Okay. And, and the something new might be worse yeah. than what we have. What we can talk about is the notion of disaster capitalism. Is this another form of opportunism for disaster capitalism to rear its ugly head yes, on the other end, true. you know, so we should keep that's this in mind, true. you know, yeah. Uh, the prosperity Marxism is a response to disaster capitalism yeah. in this context. Yeah. And Naomi uh, Klein has said as much, you know, she said, you know, yes, of course you do have, we do have uh, this moment of disaster cap, but, it, but the, the, as she said, the story's not yet written, you know, the history right. is no. No, that's correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. I thought this was a, a spirited and good discussion uh, in our social isolation, <laughs> isolationist tendencies. And uh, we the next wish, time uh, we should have, uh, 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 if Gupta is doing uh, uh, cooking shows, then we should do, you know, maybe other things. You know. The proper Maybe way to make the food for thought can, part yeah, one is part some of practical a, advice. Food for thought. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, that sounds great. Okay. Okay. And again, a big thank you to Josh Colbo, uh, our our uh, man behind the glass and uh, you know, our uh, regular interlocutor of a, a different generation, uh, up and coming and uh, 
you know, the, the future belongs to them. And uh, we hope it, it will last the future for, forever. We, we think health is there. So thank you for listening. Good health, everybody. And we'll be back soon. We'll probably do a lot of these in the next uh, couple of months. And uh, hopefully we, we uh, sustain the interest. So thank you very much from Prosperity Marxism, Michael Pelius, Peter Bratzis, and uh, Joshua Calbo uh, behind the glass. Thank you so much. Good night. There is a war between the rich and poor, a war between the man and the woman. There is a war between the ones who say there is a war and the ones who say that there isn't. Why don't you come on back to the war that's right, get in it.